You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special bonus episode covering Clerks and the films of Kevin Smith, featuring Quick Stops, Video Stores, Movies, Snoochie Boochies, Jay, Silent Bob, Roof Hockey, Dead Guys, Dick Sucking, Donkey Shows, Drug Dealers, Musical Numbers, Racial Slurs, Homophobia, and Rosario Dawson, all in historic Red Bank, New Jersey. Martin? Yes. This will get you higher than Godzilla's asshole. She saw Chewbacca. Another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin. Hello, hello. How's it feel to be behind the counter of the quick stop? Horrible. Um, <laughs> well, not all the way. The early ones, yes, but we'll get to something later that I did not like as much. And joining us for the first time in forever is co-founder of Secret Handshake, Cody Bouchard. What's up, fellas? All the way back, 200 miles later, I'm back in the circle. Yes. And it, it, this feels appropriate in terms of like movies, even though we're not all the biggest Kevin Smith fans, I would say. But doing a re, like say a reunion podcast about movies that are essentially just a bunch of friends hanging out in a convenience store in New Jersey. Um, well, they went, hey, we can, we love movies and we can make a movie. And we went, hey, we love movies and we can make a podcast. Yeah. Definitely. One is definitely easier than the other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I don't know. If you watch Kevin Smith's movies, maybe making a podcast is harder than making movies. Who fucking knows? But I guess I wanted to start it, kind of take it back to our old school episodes and ask you guys, like, because I, I couldn't actually answer this question in my head when I was thinking about it, is that do you remember the first time you watched Clerks or encountered Kevin Smith? Because I don't. Actually. I know exactly where I was. Okay, go first then, Martin. I, I was, um, I think it was 95, uh, and I was down in Bloomington, Indiana, and my friend Ben Goaty, I was in, uh, it was in middle school. And his brother, his brother Ted, was old, much older than us, and was like we looked up to him as like this cool guy. And he lived, but he lived in the basement of his parents' house in Bloomington. 
and was like that era of nerd, like this bigger dude, and he had a clerk's poster on his wall. How appropriate. And it was this, and I was like, man, what is that? And then I remember seeing all the reviews on it, and I remember seeing the poster also before, but he was the first one who kind of told me what it was about. And I think we watched it that weekend. And Ben was like a friend that from that to Mallrats, like we would go be Mallrats on Saturday. It was like a thing we would do is he would say, oh, let's go be Mallrats today. Like he would use that, that word. And so Kevin Smith from that point was very much like in my lexicon of the way I talked to friends. And I mean, I think Mallrats had more of an effect on um, like what I said and quotes I would do, especially Jason Lee from Mallrats. Um, but yeah, I think it was around yeah, that time and then all through middle school. And then I had a best friend in college, Derek, who was just the biggest Kevin Smith fan. So anytime a new one would come out, we'd go see it. And I was already kind of waning on him, I think, by college. Um, but I still was like interested when something would come out. What about you, Cody? Uh, yeah, I don't remember specifically when I first saw it. But um, I mean, it was definitely in like my later high school years, early post high school years. Um, I worked at Blockbuster for a long time, so I was definitely aware of the films. I remember seeing like the clerk's trailer specifically, the black and white when he's doing like the jaws with the chip and the salsa. Uh, that always stuck in my mind. Um, so <laughs> um, when I was at that particular age, I was wanting to know more about movies and be cooler because I knew more about movies. So in my mind, it's kind of like I associate Tarantino and Kevin Smith in the way that you would associate like Superman and uh, Bizarro to where they're both like these homegrown guys who were self-taught in film and then just decided to make a movie and they made their own script and things. So that's kind of how I see them. But um, also, you know, late high school, early post high school, there was a lot of marijuana involved. So these particular movies were um, very good for stoking that particular appetite. Well, they're the Miramax boys. I mean, it was like Tarantino, Smith and Rodriguez. Right. I was thinking about that. Those are the guys that, again, like Rodriguez also DIY, you know, of like rebel without a crew. And I went and made a movie for, under $8,000. Yeah, which is how the myth goes. And I mean, he, they it's even bullshit, but talked yeah. about like Miramax. What was the old quote? That that was the house that Tarantino built, you know? Right. But I mean, I like that you bring up the video store this early because this is like what I guess is now referred to as the video store generation of filmmakers because it's mm. like Kevin Smith, Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez, but then also guys like Soderbergh. Yep. Linklater is in there. Um, and really that whole wave, like Roger Avery, because of his association with Tarantino, it's that whole generation of guys who grew up during the 80s watching every obscure film they could find on tape. Linklater is one of the great kind of examples of this because he even founded like Austin Film Society to do screenings of like these uh, art house gems and everything that he would watch with his friends and like whoever would basically come and, you know, Austin Film Society is still standing today and has a fucking bar in it and shit, you know? But it's like, these guys were the self-taught auteurs who were just watching stuff over and over and over again. And they weren't like Spike Lee who went to NYU or like a lot of guys who actually just went to film school. Like, you know, the old, again, apocryphal Tarantino quote goes, I didn't go to film school, I went to films. Well, and that was, that's a joke we'll see in Clerks 3. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's Randall saying that. Is like, you spent $75,000 going to a film school, but I've been, I ran a video store for 20 years. 
Yeah. You know, what do you think about like the movie brat generation of like Spielberg and them and they were the first generation who had like grown up with movies and were movie fans who were kind of bringing in like the Palma obviously with like Hitchcock, but a lot of stuff they were watching was higher class, a lot of sure. it. And this is the guys like especially Tarantino who's watching Schlock, watching Hong Kong movies, watching just like black exploitation and clerks. And I think there's definitely some Cassavetes, you know, running throughout early Smith. But also just, oh, I can do a movie about about nerds, too. And not in the revenge of the nerd sense, but actual, like, outcasts. Well, and it's also a reminder. Nerds as much as the losers. Yeah. But, but also, but nerd culture. Like, he was the first filmmaker I remember who was making films meta about, like, talking about Star Wars, talking about the things that I liked. And this was back when it was yeah. not cool to be a nerd. Yeah. Like, and I think that's kind of where he got lapped by culture, is, like, he was important to, like, people like me. He's like, oh, I like Fantastic Four. Yeah. Oh, that's Stan Lee. He's a, he's a, he's one of my heroes. Now Stan Lee's on fucking lunchboxes for, like, every kid. Yeah. You know, it's like, now that culture's caught up and passed him by, it's like, is he relevant anymore? That's kind of the, one of the biggest things, I think, that caught up on him. Well, and it's also one of those arguments nowadays to where it's like what we're experiencing with like the Marvel boom and the post Lord of the Rings boom and everything is the revenge of the nerd. And Kevin Smith was sort of ahead of the curve yes, on that yeah. because he was the, a lot of people do cite clerks as being one of the first movies along with like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction as being the ones where they were like, Oh, you can talk like that in movies? Like, I, I'm hearing myself. I'm hearing the conversations that I would have with friends. Now, I don't 100% agree with that because I never had conversations with my friends, you know, really that early about, like, you know, contractors on the Death Star yeah, or whatever. That was but like an original thought the first time I heard it. I was like, oh, I've never even, I've never even yeah. dreamed of thinking about something from that perspective. But which, I, is, which is cool yeah. when you first see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I always... You know what the quote is that I always related to the most out of this like generation of dudes was when Tim Roth talks about needing to like, he's getting all these phone calls during the weed drought in what reservoir dogs. And he's like, I'm just trying to fucking watch the lost boys. And like, these people won't leave me alone. Like that was the one that I related to the most. I was like, yeah, the fucking lost boys. Cause I watched that tape over and over and over again, but that's how clerks became for me around like, <sighs> 14 or 15 because this movie came out when I was 12 I want to say mm -hmm. and like around 14 15 like it was when you discovered it at like the local video store and I just watched it again and again and again because it was like you along with Tarantino it was the birth of like that indie rock star screenwriter which is what I wanted to personally be because you watched Smith's movies and it was just like like today I was watching it to prep for the podcast and Carrie walked in and was like, why does this sound like a play? But that's what it, when you watch the original clerks, but that's what you wanted to write when you were starting out and like really an aspiring screenwriter is that it was like these lengthy monologues about the death star, everyday life, girlfriends, like all of your buddies. Like that was what you had as experience to pull from to write about and that's what you tried to emulate and that's i certainly know like smith and tarantino were the ones that i mostly was trying to write like and failing miserably yeah it was again it was that belief the, D, the diy thing especially with smith of like if your dialogue is good enough and you can get 20 you can max out some credit cards for mm -hmm. twenty five thousand dollars 
you can make a movie. He shot it on fucking film. I mean, like it's much easier now. Obviously, we we'll see with part three, but like with digital, <laughs> anyone can shoot a movie like Clerks. I mean, right, we could do it fucking right now because um, you're not spending money on anything once you have the camera and the people there. But he was, I mean, I was the same way. I look up to him. And um, I think what, like, you see, though, Tarantino very quickly, like, he started changing. I mean, he was growing as a writer. And, like, a lot of his stuff, like, like Smith feels like he got stuck in one gear and he's still doing it today. Yep. Well, and it's notable that Tarantino kind of threw his clerks out because technically Tarantino's clerks is my best friend's birthday. That was his black and white experimental mm. thing that, Either got law, depending on what legend you believe about it, like because you can still find footage of it like floating around out there. But if you watch it, like that was his student film. That's what he was doing. That that Kevin Smith completed and took to Sundance and sold for all that money. It's just that Smith, you know, he that was his vision to where Tarantino watched even that before Reservoir Dogs and was like, this isn't good enough to go out there. So like. Praise be to Smith for having the balls to take his student film and get it accepted into Sundance. But like Tarantino, even like out the gate was like, no, I'm a little beyond this, this point, you know, as yes. a filmmaker and an artist. Yeah. As far as directors growing and whatnot, I feel like, uh, Smith kind of topped out around Dogma or Jay yep. and Silent Bob Strike Back. I would say Dogma was the one where he like, that was his prestige that pick big and everyone started like people who didn't know him, like friends of mine were like, Oh, I saw that. What else does he have? Like he, that was the one that really, and that was culturally like a big deal. Oh yeah. I, Cause it was offending everybody and like all the stuff with the Catholic church. Well, and it's more said as God. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I got dropped by Disney yeah. because at Lionsgate then swoops in and picks it up and distributes it because that was a hugely controversial movie. And How that was, was Disney ever attached to that? That well, blows my I mean, mind. They own Miramax. Oh, okay. Like yeah. that's was part of it is they were the distribution arm that the, the Weinsteins were going through. If I'm getting my I facts think so, yeah. right. But, but it was they so essentially to them. said that they weren't going to put it out. So they, they put it on the market and Lionsgate basically scooped it up for a ton of money and put it out in theaters. And then that was one of my first experiences with like controversy about a movie is that I expected this to be this raging like parade of like offensive gags and like something that, you know, it really had something to say about the Catholic church that was like subversive and stuff. And then you watch it and you're like, Oh, it has like shit demons. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what do you think put it over the top for Disney? Like the shit demon or uh... I don't think so at all. I just think it was the straight up big movie that was yeah. right on talking about the Catholic church. I mean, it's no, it's actually less offensive than life of Brian. So life of the... Brian really gets into like critiquing Jesus. Yeah. You know, so you think it was the buddy Christ over the shit demon. I think so. <laughs> or the last, like, it's the last temptation effect yeah. is that they weren't, it wasn't necessarily the content of the movie, although obviously Last Temptation of Christ was much more offensive than anything in dogma to, to Catholics and Christians over the world. Um, it was more just the, the threat of protest, yes. I feel like, yeah. is what was hanging over it over rather than the actual content of the movie itself. But to back to your point, I honestly think where Smith peaks as a filmmaker is Clerks 2. Like, mm. I think it's his most visually inventive movie. I think it has the best, some of the best performances because it scales back a lot of his ambition. I think Dogma actually gets away from him for a while because it's so unwieldy and weird yeah. and, like, it's trying to be, like, a it's, huge It's swing. epic, yeah. But it also reveals that, like, 
Smith is arguably just a writer and not necessarily a filmmaker. And Clerks, he's actually trying to flex some muscles as a filmmaker with like a musical sequence, crane shots, etc. You know, where like he's still doing the point and shoot, have two people enter the frame and tell dick jokes with dogma. He'd been, I mean, Top Out for all its problems, like was a, a huge movie. The biggest one he'd ever done, I think, budget wise. And there are obviously, you know, historically a lot of problems between he and uh, Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis basically threatened to like kill him over that movie and like called him incompetent because is it the story that he went up and was asking Smith like about lenses or something? And Smith had no idea like even what lens they were shooting on and Willis like lost his fucking shit. I believe that's how it went. There was a lot. And I I mean, recently they've kind of, you know, um, made up, um, you know, uh, Kevin Smith. I think it was, I don't think it was Comic-Con, but where he was, but he was asked about Bruce Willis's recent diagnosis. And he got cried. He cried on stage and was just like, I feel so bad that that might've been happening even that far back. And like, I've been so angry at Bruce, but like, I think he'd reached out to Bruce's people. And then he had heard someone say, one of Bruce's people said, actually, he loved working on cop out with you. There's this weird thing of like, that's just Bruce. And he was saying like, I've been holding on to all this hatred of this guy for like 15, 20 years. And now I can kind of let it go. Um, well, Willis always was like a notorious dickhead on set. That's oh, not yeah. the yeah. only movie that you heard those stories about. Like he was real into himself and honestly really into like almost being kind of a diva. To a yeah. certain degree, you hate to talk about a man now who's suffering from a degenerative like mental state, but Willis was known for being a prick. But he did. Yeah, you're right. I think like going back to was a return to like his wheelhouse, and and I, like you're saying, he's a writer, not a director. I mean, like, and so it's like he liked to have these long, drawn out jokes. But but two, like, yeah, it actually looks like a movie too, and I think he did. From his time on on things like Dogma and then like even Jersey Girl, which was a bigger movie that was kind of not in his normal style. Going back to Clerks too, it's like, oh, I know all these things. I'm going to shoot it like one of my newer movies. Like it feels like it's a budget. It's edited well, you know. Like there's actually there's a nice camera and he edits it again. Yeah, but it, it's I mean again we'll get to three later, but that's kind of a return to you know really shitty DIY style. Um, well, maybe that was intentional. Maybe he's trying to, I don't think so. No, I mean, it's, it's so egregious. Like, <laughs> I want to save it for the actual clerks three like segment, but yet yeah, three unfortunately indulges all of his post Tusk yeah. DIY tendencies Red where State. like he, you want to talk about it. Well, that's actually pretty well retreat? directed. Red State. I, I wouldn't go that compared far. to this. I mean, like it looks sure. like it looks like a movie. Yeah, you know. I mean, I have home videos that are better directed than Clerks Three. So I mean, but it's to to the greater point. Like it feels there were two retreats, right? Is that he kind of rose throughout the '90s because you have Clerks, Mallrats, which was on a production scale kind of a disaster too. There's a lot of bad stories about that one. Chasing Amy. Um, Dogma. Which one am I missing here? So Jersey Girl in 02? Jersey Girl. That's 04. 04 is Jersey Girl. Jay yeah. and Silent Bob Strike Back. Jay and Silent Bob yep. Strike Back is the other one that I'm missing too because that's 2001. That's almost, that's entering my senior year of high school. And then he kind of peaks with Cop Out. And then he kind of works his way through all the way to Tusk. 
Well, see, Red State was the next big thing. It was a big deal. Cause, like, he's doing a horror film. Well, he did the horror film, and then there was that whole movie auction that he did. I think he did. he did that in jest to make production money for like his next for Red State. I think he was trying to somehow fund Red State by doing Tusk as a joke. Well, well no, Tusk, Tusk is later. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Tusk is one of the first... Well, what, what came after A24 Tusk? movies in, in hindsight. Mm. That's back when like A24 was in its most nascent stages is that you had Spring Breakers on one hand and then fucking Tusk on the other because Tusk is the first press screening I ever attended for Fantastic Fest. So oh, Clerks 2 come after Tusk? Here. No, much before. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. Clerks 2 is 2006. That's when... I'm just graduating from college. It's one of the first movies I remember seeing. Like, Tusk is like 2012 or 13. Yeah, yeah. it's 2012. Um, but my point is more that like Smith kind of worked in waves to where like he he crested in popularity and how big he wanted to go with Cop Out. And then he retreats a bit, works up, up some momentum once again, but then, and tries some new things with like Red State and like is experimenting and actually trying to be a filmmaker but then that's all sort of rejected too. And then he makes Tusk as a joke because it's essentially like a feature length elaboration of like a joke that he told on the Smodcast one time. And then when that movie was kind of rejected too, he just did the whole fuck it there for the fans and started really making these cruddy like Rodriguez backyard you know, troublemaker productions, like level movies. Yeah, what was the one with like Depp and Depp's daughter and his daughter? Yoga Hosers. Yoga Hosers. Yeah, that's, that's more the, what I'm talking that's about. That's unwatchable. That is downright. Yeah. Just horrible. And where Johnny Depp comes back as Guy Lapointe. Yeah. Right? The French Canadian French detective. like detective. But it, there's some good stuff mixed into the bad Kevin Smith years. He's almost like Argento. To where, like, every third movie you might get something that's watchable. Like, I like Zack and Miri make a porno yeah. well enough. It's funny. It's pretty funny. And it's that, was a, bigger, that was a bigger one, too. Because yeah. uh, Seth, Seth was big yeah. at yeah. that point. Who was the girl on that? Uh, Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. Right. And, like, yeah, he, that, again, is that you, you're seeing him, like, come back and almost, like, dip his toe into being a mainstream filmmaker again. Yeah. But he completely retreats after Tusk. And... Clerks 3 is much more in line with the whole quote unquote it's for the fans mode of his like later career because he also did a movie that I completely forgot about <laughs> until Cody referenced it while we were watching Clerks 3 is uh, the Jay and Silent Bob reboot which did I didn't even attempt. Did he that or am I making that up? I think he kickstarted part of it. Right. Right? Yeah. So like but I didn't even try it. You said Martin you got through five minutes. Five minutes. And Cody I watched, watched the, the whole thing. thing. The, the best, I mean, the only good part about it in my mind was uh, Ben Affleck in the end. But I just, I honestly, I feel really bad for, I mean, Jason Muse has had a really rough ride and he's like, I don't like looking at him. That sounds so mean, but he, he looks like, I know that Kevin stood by him, but he, everyone just looks really bad. Still walking cautionary. You tale. know? Yeah. It's just like, and every, everybody, especially when we get to three, just like, no one looks good. No. Except one person. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it, it's almost a mixture of like, they've all actually like aged into looking like chuds and then Kevin Smith shoots them like chuds because he doesn't know how to operate. They look like they're camera. actually dead, like a mortician did their makeup and then they got <laughs> out of the coffin and started acting. Yeah, it's well, really, unquote. really bad. But let's get back to Clerks, yep, yep. like the good days. Because the other thing about Clerks that was amazing is that this is like the Sundance generation 
that Soderbergh kicks off with Sex, Lies, and Videotape in like 89. And then you have Reservoir Dogs in 91, which is one of the big ones. And then Clerks is like 94. And that was like, like he was a darling at, at the festival. And then Clerks is also the same year that we get Pulp Fiction too. Yeah. So it's like, we're really experiencing this boom in American indie, indie cinema that frankly, I mean, you know, Smith and Link Ladder and stuff, they were a huge part of. But you watch, we were text messaging back and forth, Martin, while we were watching the, the original films, is that even from the beginning, you see the difference between a Kevin Smith and a Link Ladder. Yes. Because Link Ladder, it's all there, even in Slacker, in like 89 is Slacker, mm-hmm. right? Because it's all, he his influences are much more esoteric. He's doing all of those very weird like crane shots and like long experimental shots. He's doing all the same stuff with like non-actors that Smith is doing, but he's letting them like monologue about like Madonna's pap smear. And he's really exploring Austin as like a geographical entity as opposed to Smith. And again, this is partially budget limitations and stuff, but like you can see all of the ambition that Linklater had as an actual visual filmmaker in Slacker to where like, Kevin Smith, again, is just setting up the black and white camera, having two people enter the frame and enter the, and like deliver his dialogue. And it becomes his filmed play just in the quick stop. Well, back to Cody's point earlier, like, you know, Smith made movies about losers and so did Linkletter, right. especially early on. Because a lot of the, a lot of the characters, even in Days to Confuse, are again, the outcast kind of losers, uh, like the stoner generation. But there's a lot, there's a lot, the Venn diagram crosses over quite a bit. So they, they all, they all pontificate, but with Smith, it's usually pop culture. It's more, you know, they usually talk about Star Wars or it's just so juvenile. It really gets down to, you know, a lot of just like homophobia and like, and just, you know, Randall being ridiculous and um, Dante going, what, what are you talking? You can't say things like that. Yeah. That's their beat for three movies yeah. I mean, over and over and over again. And Linklater, like, like you said, definitely has more philosophical, um, like heights he wants to reach. I mean, you know, you think about the moment one of favorite days to confuse and it's, um, Randall Pink Floyd, like walking around with the camera spins around him when they're in the, the football field and his friend is, is speaking about, I want to do it the best as I could when I was here. And it's just this really kind of like transcendent moment. And it's also filmed to be transcendent. Like you're right. saying there's visual filmmaking to accompany good writing, you net you rarely get that with Kevin Smith, where he like you know image and word come together. It's usually like, oh, I remember like we're saying, I remember the speech about the contractors. Yeah, I don't remember what that looks like. I do. I remember. I, I, I mean, besides <laughs> no, it all, like, because it's the same as all his, his other shots. Just like you said, it's a two shot. It does exactly, the camera. Yeah. It's two guys just delivering dialogue. Yeah. Well, and even like revisiting Clerks, I forgot how episodic it is to where it's literally structured even with like the one word title title cards like vilification is like the first one i believe and it's like you can feel him writing them as like these kind of amateurish scenarios that again these amateur actors are entering and just delivering this dialogue to where there's even like hi-hat symbol hits at the end of certain jokes and stuff and like again he's just kind of fucking around with his friends in the same way that it felt like Sandler was on like a bigger budget. I do think there's like an element to Smith that we 
give, I guess we knocked Sandler for for the longest time and now kind of give him credit for the people who are like reclaiming Sandler, as I think you could make the same argument about Smith, is that again, what's wrong with just getting some money and making a movie with your buddies? And that's what Smith was doing the whole time. Like it was a real community theater kind of approach to filmmaking of like, Hey, I know these guys. They're all fucking characters and weirdos from my real life. What if I put a camera like in front of them and just had them say like wild shit that I can write in, to be fair, very literate prose and have them deliver it. I think that's what made Smith kind of like cool and stand apart from Linklater and Tarantino too is back in the day is while you have this independent feel making feel from all three of them, Kevin Smith stuff is like you legitimately feel like you're sitting around just with your friends shooting the shit and you're like, oh, I didn't know they could make a movie about this and make it interesting. Whereas Tarantino and Linklater, their films are still set in somewhat fantastical worlds like grounded for sure, but it's still fantastical to a degree. Smith just seems like everyday life. Would, That's would, a good point. I, absolutely. Or, you know, you think about Days and Views, a period piece, right? Yeah. It's just like I have to actually produce this and build sets and, right. and get costumes. Costumes, yeah. cars. Yeah. yeah. Well, and to bounce off of what Cody's saying is that, like, Clark's feels like it's happening in the moment where, like, something like Days and Confused Confused feels like a memory. Like, it feels like yeah. when a link ladders, like, recollections to where, like, Pulp Fiction feels like another dimension. Exactly, yeah. Even Reservoir Dogs feels like another dimension for how grounded a lot of it is. It's so stylized. Everybody, like, nobody really speaks like that in real life. It's really interesting to listen to, but... It's still a bunch of actors in a, like, more or less like a warehouse in the valley doing a play. Yeah. When it's, I think, you know, the look of, like, especially Clerks, the original, like, shot on film with, like, grainy fucking black and white, um... That's the kind of stuff you'd see at film festivals back at that time. Yeah. Well, you like, brought so, up Aronofsky's Pie while yeah, we were watching. It, the it looks film. like Pie, you know. It's that kind of thing, is, and it was completely out of necessity, right? And you know, it's ideas like you know, it's you're definitely not going to pay for color. You know, video at that point is going to look like complete shit. You're shooting on V8. You're shooting on VHS, which is going to look like sledgehammer. <laughs> you know, um, but this like okay, it's it's pleasant, but again, you shot like this to show off your writing. A lot of times, right? Or you're going for like a Cassavetes look, or that that purposeful, like I'm going to do kind of a a gritty, or or Jarmusch kind of made an art out of that style as well. It's worth noting though that Smith, I don't think, has any shots in Clerks that don't use a tripod or like yeah. a harnessed camera to where like Jarmusch. And especially Cassavetes yeah. that you just brought up. Like, Cassavetes was almost all handheld. Right. Jarmusch had a lot of motion to, like, his camera movements and stuff. Like, Smith shooting it as safely as possible. Again, almost like a home movie. I think some of his tripods were actually made out of hockey sticks, just like... Yeah, well, here. like, the boom mic and yeah, stuff, yeah, too, exactly. was harnessed to a hockey stick. They, they bring that back in Clerks 3 and, like, the meta kind of universe that they have. How did you guys feel about the movies after Clerks? Like, I, I do want to talk about our relationship to Smith as a filmmaker as we've gotten older because, like, I feel like even the subsequent films that he made after Clerks were really important to people. I mean, Mallrats was my, is still my favorite. Like, I, that was the one that hit with me. And I liked, um, I also was that age where I liked malls. I liked going to the mall. And it had that, the ultimate hangout feel. You know, well, that was a whole culture that's literally lost to a, a yep. generation now. Like, 
do we even have malls like that anymore where people go and hang out? Like when we were kids, I know we brought this up on the podcast before, like that was part of it. Your parents gave you $20, dropped you off at the movie theater or dropped you off at the mall and you like hung out with your friends and shit. Yeah. Oftentimes the mall would have a movie theater. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say that too. All, yeah. Greenwood Park Mall. I would go with I, yeah, my friend Ben and we would just hang out there all day and then like keep going to KB Toys and maybe I'll buy something. Maybe I won't go, yeah. to, go to Sam Goody. Walton you know, books, Sign Post video. If you want to yeah. feel like really cool, you go to Spencer's. If you want to feel like really edgy, you go on Hot Topic just to look around. And for like, me, oh, it was no. even pre Hot Topic. Like we didn't even have one at that point, you know. But yeah, that those types of stores. So I think for me, Marats, um, and when Doggone came out, it was a big deal. I remember because it came out, it came with the video store the same time as Fight Club. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember because it was right at the same time. I had, I had a buddy. They're both ninety nine. Yep. And I had a buddy who would, um, he was older and would rent whatever. He was like a junior and I was a freshman. So he could rent whatever. And I remember him bringing Dogma over. And we were all like watching at a friend's house. And he had already seen it in the theater and was like quoting it annoyingly. And we're like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, we haven't seen this yet. And <laughs> yeah, Dogma and Fight Club, that's an interesting double feature. Yeah. But it was <laughs> that, that era of just like, and there was some, you know, cool fucking shit coming out. Well, and that was right when I turned 17 and could actually go to R-rated movies. So to yep. me, it was, again, like 99 was such a huge year for kind of opening opening like my mind up to like the possibilities of cinema, especially in like the American cinema. But we're also forgetting one, and honestly was the one during the 90s was the most important to me personally, is Chasing Amy. Yeah. Chasing Amy was... I don't know how it's aged. It's actually a movie I'm terrified to revisit because I I enjoyed it so much during its heyday, mm-hmm. during the, the video store era, because that was the movie. I mean, it was in the Criterion Collection when it yep. came out, and that was the movie that a lot of people touted as like Smith's quote unquote real movie. Or his like, arrival as or a like real. his mature yeah. like movie. And that still has like, you know. The whole uh, monologue at the the comic convention by the black creator talking about how Darth Brit, Brit Vader is really a black man who feels white inside and all that <laughs> shit. But like, there was a real energy to that film, and the way that people were protective over it now feels odd because I bet you if we showed that to like a group of twenty somethings in twenty twenty two, we would be crucified. It, I I totally. I passed over that one because I, I remember seeing that around the same time before Dogma because I was like, anytime he had a movie come out, I would try to watch it at that period. I think I was a little young for it. I just, I mean, I hadn't, hadn't really had any romantic love yet. I had, it was an idea of romance that I was like, oh wow, like how, how sad, like she's a lesbian and he really loved, and it's like, but he loves her enough that she'll change, you know? And again, I don't think that would fly today. Um, the, the tone and the, the, the message I don't think would go over well. I think even the basic premise would fucking put people off is that it's like a man can fall in love with a lesbian. Ooh, how taboo. Like nowadays with how we talk about sexuality and the fluidity of it and everything is that like that would just mark the movie as completely unwoke at this point. But also like I remember when it it was at the rise of Ben Affleck. Yeah. Because you're, I believe it's 97. Mm-hmm. So you're the same year as Goodwill Hunting, right? Wow, and the year before Armageddon. Yeah. So like this Things is, happened fast for him. He was one of the ones that like, I mean, it was pals with Smith. I Got mean, obviously. Teeth quick. Yeah. Yes. God. But like, you know, Smith was a big factor in launching Affleck's career because 
Affleck had this weird little indie comedy about falling in love with a lesbian. And then he also had this Gus Van Zant movie that was basically awards that he wrote, <laughs> that he wrote, co-wrote and ended up winning the Academy Award with Damon. And then he's in a fucking Michael Bay, like blockbuster. That was the biggest movie of that year, you know, the very next year. So it was like chasing Amy was a huge cultural moment in its own way. And now it feels almost lost to time. Like it's it's yeah. notable that Criterion's never put it out on Blu-ray. It, they had those they had those films that kind of came through where they got overly excited, right? You know, where they'd be like, "Oh, that's, a, that's definitely worth Criterion." I mean, but back when they were Laserdisc, they had a Halloween, they had a Hard Boil, which deserved being Criterion. Make yeah. that clear, but but still, <laughs> like they weren't they were still figuring out like what they were about. But it was like a quote unquote important film. They would say you know contemporary important films, and that was. That was one of them, but again, I think it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a—it's probably weirdly offensive in its own way today, but also just kind of irrelevant, right? It feels like to the conversation. Also, has one of Smith's best jokes in it too, where they talk about doing it in the most uncomfortable place possible, and he goes, "The back of a Volkswagen." That's, that's, that's Mallrats. Oh wait, I thought that was Chasing Amy. Am I mixed? And it's Ben Affleck too. Yeah. Oh man, maybe well, that's why I'm mixing it up. Yeah, because he's the one who's. Ja- having- I think Jason Lee does a line, doesn't he? Or- well, because a lot of people say it. Yeah. It's a repeated joke because right, right, right. yeah. he's having sex with... Mm-hmm. Underage girls in yeah. the backseat of a Volkswagen. Yeah. Oh, I always remember that from Chasing Amy because I felt like they brought it back for that Maybe one. Maybe they did, but it's yeah. the, the main... It's like a huge through line for... Uh, and I hated uh, Mulrats. Like, even growing up, I did not like that movie except for the whole stink palm part. I have the same sentiment that Martin does. Uh, like, Mulrats was my favorite, and it was the one that I guess I hit at just like the right age, Chasing Amy, when yep. it came out. I could care less. Yep. <laughs> Now, I'm going to ask a, another question that might be sticky. When's the last time you guys watched any of these movies? Because I know the Clerks films, this was the first time I watched either of them in uh, maybe 10 years. I watched Clerks this year. Okay. And I watched Mallrats. I was like having honestly like a low day. And I was like, I want to watch something so nostalgic from like that era of my life. I just had this weird feeling of like, I want to go back to middle school. I want to go back to middle school. And so I did Mallrats first, and it felt really good. Like, I honestly did. I still adore that movie. Like, it's stupid. But I had it on VHS, and I probably watched it, like, every Saturday. It was one of those movies I would have playing when I got a TV in my room. And Mom walked in one time, like, during the joke about Jason Lee farting uh, on Michelle. While getting a blowjob. While getting a blowjob. And she's like, what are you watching? And was, like, so offended. And it was just like, of course... Mom's walking at the wrong, you know, the yeah. exact wrong uh, time, and that was. It would have been madder it. when Kevin Smith burst his head, burst through the dressing room door. Yes, yeah, and so it was. It was one of those moments. But I, I just, I love, I love it. Yeah, I guess it was last year, this year, or last year. Um, and again, I have a very different view of him now, but it felt good to kind of return. Uh, within the last five years, but I can't oh, specifically wow. okay. name. Um, the last thing that I had seen before this was the. Jay and Silent Bob reboot and that, you know, didn't whet my appetite for further viewings. Well, because there's another movie that you bring up. It, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back yeah. was like an event for me yeah. in mm-hmm. 2001 when it came out. And I was like, I think entering my senior year of high school, the whole soccer team went and saw it during preseason. And we thought it was the funniest fucking shit ever. You had one of the arrivals of Will Ferrell yep. in that. You had the fembots in it. You had all these great lines and everything. George Carlin and Carrie Fisher. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine watching that movie now. Like, I just can't fathom physically sitting down and making the choice, I'm going to watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. 
Why do you think that is? For me, the Mallrats is like Kevin Smith's sweet point of his like, I don't know, wacky and nerd culture and endearing. I think Jay and Silent Bob just takes it too far into wacky. Like it's just not enough to ground it emotionally in the real world, I guess. 100%. I agree 100%. I think that like Mallrats is that sweet spot of, again, him talking about with Stan Lee about um, does the thing have a rock dick? This is you know, Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> like that, again, at that age, or even today, I think it's just really funny. I also think Jason Lee is great. Yeah. Um, and he went on to have quite a career. I mean, My Name is Earl. You see him in Clerks 2 come back. You could tell off the set of My Name is Earl. Didn't even cut his hair. He's supposed to be a prep, but he couldn't shave his fucking mustache. And so the sideburns. And the side, So he literally is My Name is Earl with a polo. Oh, yeah. you're a prep now. It's like, okay, cool. Got you. You start his voice. Like, I don't know if he just smoked 10 packs a day for a year or what happened, but. Yeah, he's just, he's just chewing on gravel now. But I I, lo- I love Jason Lee, and I think um, his character in Mallrats brings it through. Yeah, and that. But I think the Brody. further you go, and I think that Jay and Silent Bob they make the joke in Clerks Three about kind of like they were funny in the first one. We keep bringing them back to keep the fans happy. Yep. I don't think they've been funny in a long fucking time. No. as a bit. And Kevin Smith also like you're if you're already annoyed with him and you see him on screen, it's just like you got to roll your eyes. I think that's kind of for me why I just don't give a shit about wanting to watch. His mind, work, his mind any... work has just gotten a little too extreme. Yeah, yeah. Hey, quick question. Do you guys think that Jason Mewes went to Ben Affleck's veneer guy? I mean, I think he has... He has it's not veneers. He has fucking... Full-on new teeth? Full-on new teeth. Those are dentures. Yeah, they're yeah. dentures, because yeah. Because he lost them from all the drug use, Yeah, right? absolutely. Oh, okay. Yep. But I guess my thing with Smith is that he tried to build an entire universe out the of view his, askew, yeah. yeah, the view askew universe. He made a joke one time in one of his uh, an evening with Kevin Smiths where he was like, "Oh, the mortgages do well. Let's see what Jane and Bob are gonna do this week." It's almost like his version of John Carpenter talking about writing Halloween too. Is like <laughs> we didn't have any beer in the fridge, so I decided to bang out a script. Like, I think that might be why I started to become jaded with Smith's style. Because like like him showing up, Jay and Silent Bob, frankly, showing up in like Scream Three Ugh. as like a cameo. Like he just he was really into the idea almost of him becoming a recognizable icon, cross cultural. Yeah, exactly. Instead, or even iconoclastic in a way. Mm-hmm. Instead of like actually becoming a better filmmaker and making better films is that it was almost like, I have a fan base now because you bring up the evening with Kevin Smith stuff. Like those were huge Mm -hmm. with people. Like I remember I had friends who would like buy those DVDs and watch them like over and over and over again. Like they were the greatest standup of all time. That's what he was doing when he had his heart attack. Right. He was between shows. Yeah. Well, he's really, like, honestly, he's good at that stuff. Like, he's very charismatic. Like, um, he's a good crowd entertainer. Yeah. I mean, that, or you think about his show, Comic Book Men, you know, that he has started this empire of being kind of like a gatekeeper for nerddom. And that you'll, you really feel that in, like, Clerks 2, where, um, especially Randall's character is. You, you sense that for Smith and also in the characters he's writing that, again, nerd culture is catching up with him. Right. And so they have the whole thing about Lord of the Rings. It's like now there's this whole generation, not just of nerds, but like mainstream things that people are really into, mm-hmm. you know, and... Yeah, because you have the whole running Lord of the Rings bit in Clerks too, where like yep. Randall can't stand it because it's <laughs> almost like culture has surpassed even him. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, hey, no, good nerd shit is like Star Wars. And of course they make fun of the prequels. So it's like... 
it very much you could see Smith reckoning that and again we'll get with part three but there's some of that in there too there's only one return and it ain't of the king it's of the Jedi yeah and, it, and it's just it's kind of stale <laughs> that thing of like old man like I liked things when they were cool you know well it's also Smith recycling his own bits because I remember when the Lord of the Rings movies came out it was notable that Smith didn't like them he right. literally yeah. said and he made the same joke that Randall does which is admittedly pretty fucking funny yep. the whole thing of like what are the Lord of the Rings movies about people walking from one place to another how did they end oh we walked up to a volcano threw a ring in Meh. it's over yeah. <laughs> like that's pretty funny I don't know how astute or insightful it is, but it's like I can see like he sounds like Randall making that that criticism of the the movies themselves. It was really weird that during that era too, like in the late nineties and the early two thousands, and even today, like a lot of like like uh, Marvel and DC would court him saying like, "Oh, you're a nerd. You know nerd shit better than anyone." He was supposed to make the Superman movie, famously that he wrote yeah. and Tim Burton was going to direct the Return of Superman with, um, with Nick Cage. With Nick Cage, and of course that was one of the most famous stories he would tell during an evening with Kevin Smith. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole doc about it now they, too. Yeah, the whole big fucking spider, and it's like he's <laughs> no cape, and it's really funny because he was also he was just, he became this figure. We're talking about you know being this iconoclastic figure, but like. I have gone to the salt mines of Hollywood. Like I've seen behind the curtains, but I'm a nerd like you and I'm going to take some stories back to the people. That's kind of what he did. And then pretty quickly he was no longer getting offers like that. Cause he was close to making like, again, they were making Superman. Yeah. You can still find that the cost, script. The costumes, the they were costumes yeah, you were can done. See the and, costume tests, mm-hmm. like actual film, Nick Cage in the shiny suit with his mullet. So I'm glad you brought up the nerdy stuff because I had one thing I wanted to talk about and it, it goes in terms with what we were saying earlier with the, the maturation of, of artistry that Smith kind of never demonstrated. Do you guys remember the movie Sleep With Me? I've never seen it. From like 1994? No. It's an Eric Stoltz movie. It's, it's kind of what we were saying about Indian Summer in one our last like uh, summer camp miniseries episode is that it's one of the types of movies that just aren't made anymore and were kind of indicative of the era in which they came from. It's a, it's a tiny romantic drama comedy thing that came out of like the post Reservoir Dogs, Clerks, Soderbergh, Link Ladder, like indie cinema of like America at that time. And it's most notable for the monologue that Quentin Tarantino has. Oh, I remember the Top Gun monologue. Where he yeah, does yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, infamous yeah. Top Gun oh, monologue I've seen that about scene. Yeah. Yeah. Same. go the gay way, go the gay way, and how the entirety of Top Gun, it's, in his words, one of the greatest scripts in Hollywood history because it's subversion. It's all about talking about Mavericks wrestling with his sexuality and Iceman represents the gays. Kelly McGillis represents uh, the straight you know, life. She realizes and to like, get him, she's got to dress like a boy. Exactly. It's a, it's a long, lengthy monologue. So that's the scene from this very mediocre indie movie that everyone remembers. But I bring it up because do you know who the person that's playing against Tarantino in that scene is? Mm-hmm. And who he's delivering the monologue to? It's Todd Field. No shit. Yeah, it's, it's Tarantino and Todd Field because Tom, you know, Tarantino goes... What's one of the greatest scripts in Hollywood history, man? Fucking Top Gun, man. And Todd Field goes, get the fuck out of here. Just like that. But it's like you could clearly see 
that they were capturing a moment in kind of like L.A. scenedom in, in that point in history. Because you could imagine like Tarantino cornering Todd Field at a party and doing this with the cigarette in his hand, probably too many lines of Coke or too many The famous Fiona Apple story. Exactly. With, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. So Tarantino, you know, he makes this movie. He has this whole pop culture Top Gun monologue that he's known for. But he goes on to create Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, do the Kill Bill films, Inglorious Bastards, Hateful Eight, Django, and then ultimately Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is like his old man. Yeah, his mature, you know, yeah. His mature, like, comment on, like, what it's like to grow older in Hollywood. Meanwhile, the guy he plays against is Todd Field. Todd Field, who a few years after this would literally play Nick Nightingale in a Stanley Kubrick movie would two years after that make in the bedroom, you know, which would get nominated for Academy Awards and almost win, uh, you know, a couple in its own right. And it's a very Bergman esque, like austere sort of genre movie, but more melodrama than anything else. And then he would make one of the closest things that we ever got to a Stanley Kubrick movie in 2006's little children. A movie that came out the same year, I believe, or a year after Clerks 2 did. So while Kevin Smith is retreating back to his roots, here are two guys from the same generation that he hails from, you know, growing as artists and succeeding. While you can actually go back and point to a moment in time where they were doing the same exact thing as Smith. And now we're a month away from Todd Field returning from 16 years on hiatus to make Tar. What is Tar about? It's an austere drama about a classical composer starring Kate Blanchett. Dealing with cancel culture. And, dealing with yeah. cancel culture and like her own demise. While Smith, again, is making Clerks 3. He's making movies, quote-unquote, for the fans. I think it's just an interesting case study in how you can trace these guys back and how some of them matured while Smith just stayed the same and even regressed to a certain degree. Well, we were talking over text about this, and, and my analogy, and I, I, I love that analogy that you just gave, is also that... Um, to look at Linkletter and to look at the before trilogy, right? You know, you, know, you go from you know before sunrise to sunset to midnight, and each film matures. He matures as a filmmaker, but also his view of the world. Like he has matured, and his characters, along with you know Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, have matured. And you see it's kind of him returning to these characters, not out of the desperation you're talking about, Cody, yeah. of I need to fucking pay the bills, but a return of like, oh, I wonder where they're at right now. I'm going to take stock of my life. And early on, it's the romanticism of, you know, being falling in love with a French girl. Then it's like, oh, I've been married before and I'm in my fucking late 20s. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And then it's like, oh, I've been married. And it's like, now we're looking back. But again, they all change as films. And I, I like to think of him also starting in a similar place. Linklater as Smith of talking about losers. Again, they weren't starting at the same starting block. They had different views of the world. But they're very similar. I mean, one made a movie called Slacker and one made a movie called Clerks. Yeah, absolutely. And and but also both at a very similar budget level. I mean, they were very close and they were just kind of, hey, I'm gonna make a movie. But then and of course Linklater, what was cool is he would have successes like School of Rock, where that would have been like if Cop Out had worked. 
you know, where it's like, right. look, I can just do, because a Newton boys kind of failed, you know, but this was like, oh my God, I made a banger of a great four quadrant comedy that has Jack Black at maybe his most entertaining ever. I mean, he... Incredible movie. Yeah, I mean, next to, like, the kind of uh, unveiling of his talent in, like, High Fidelity, which is a scene. Oh, it's so good. But, or, or his character, because he kind of owns that movie as yeah. well. But, like, School of Rock is his movie, and yeah. Linklater kind of giving him that voice. But then he just, like, would go off and do his artsy stuff, come back and make some popular shit again. Well, you know? he also was able to smuggle his vision into studios, because something like Everybody Wants Some is like the dazed and confused sequel or pseudo sequel, but he got Paramount to make that movie. Yep. I mean, he also has some failures, like you you referenced Newton Boys too, like Bad News Bears, yeah. not as great. Fast Food Nation is another one that isn't great, but he was always at least the one thing you could always say about Linklater is that he never lost ambition. Like he always wanted to do something different. I mean, Boyhood is insane. Yeah, I mean, and also to be fair. It's an incredible comparison on your part, but also like Link Ladder sort of developed his greatest obsession through maturity. And that's how time affects all things. Because I mean, that's all of what he made a movie movies. about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it the, took him 10 years to film. Exactly. And that's, but that's what the before movies are about too. Revisiting these same people and seeing like at different points in our lives, like we are completely different people, even if we are together. Yeah. And it like, I think Smith is attempting that somewhat with these clerks films, especially the last one, but like clerks Two, 100% has the, let's go back to this. Well, because it's comfortable here. Yeah. And, and they, one of the things I do like about Smith, especially clerks one and two is just, we all know what it's like to feel fucking stuck. Like we're all in our thirties and like watching clerks two today. I was like, damn, like there's some shit here. I mean, I'm not working at, at fucking movies, but there's still elements in my life where I'm like, I'm not where I want to be. And I think he captures that really well of that. Yeah. And, and Dante has always been that guy. I'm not supposed to be here today. And like, I know we all get stuck like Dante where it's like, do you just get out of your own fucking head, man? You're in your own way. So like, he's got these good character things that run throughout, you know? And the thing I was kind of taking note of, with this and also thinking about mall rats was the anger at being a nerd and knowing all these things and you can't monetize it. Like I think Randall as a character, this, this guy who again has all this knowledge of movies, but what do you do with it? Like the world doesn't want that even today. Like it's hard to make money just being a nerd. Like, yeah. It's easier. Like you can do a podcast or you can like to be, have a full-time job. It's still like, there's a lot of people like Randall out there. And I feel like him sometimes where I'm like, cool, I know a lot about movies, but what's it gotten me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, I mean, I spent eight years behind the counter of a, you know, a local video store. Like, I wonder if I would even have done that if I hadn't seen clerks at such a young age. Right. You, you know? almost yeah. bought the place. Yeah. That's what I mean. I almost purchased Vulcan video. So it's like, I get that aspect of it because I also feel that way. Sometimes trapped behind a bar and trapped is the wrong way to put it because I love my job. But yeah, like everybody who comes up, I want to talk to them about movies, but I end up nine times out of 10 faking that I know anything about sports. Yep. Yeah. But, it, but I think I, I just, that's one of, things, one of the things that people connected with over, especially early on was like, it's for nerds and it's for people who are just like, 
shit, like I'm working. I mean, that was like the rally that in office space, these rally cry movies of like, yeah. like the working class of like, Oh my God, I'm either at a desk and I'm the humdrum. Like Mike judge kind of did a lot with that too, obviously. Yeah. You know, but, but Linklater, I think I, I need to rewatch suburbia, but that has that similar v, you know, vibe. That's the closest to clerks. I think that, well, and that's a filmed play because that was an Eric Bogosian. Yes, it was. But the one thing I will say about Clerks too, as we kind of knock Smith over and over again for not having ambition, what he does to in that movie beyond stretching as a visual filmmaker somewhat, man, the jokes in that movie are like jokes you could never fucking say today. And it feels like <laughs> him literally being like, oh, you thought you were going to give me an NC... Because he almost notoriously got an NC-17 for Clerks for language and stuff. But it was almost like... Oh, you think you were going to slap me for that one? Way do you get a ro- load of this? Because he has Randall breaking down why he doesn't think Porch Monkey is offensive in a scene that I think is totally hilarious, but feel awful for laughing at the whole way. I remember seeing it the first time my brother, we were watching it. You know, my dad was in the hospital at that point and Jesus. he had on DVD. <laughs> No, but he had, he had, he's like, I think you need to see this movie. Like, we, we need to laugh. And we watched that scene, and I'm like crying laughing. Because again, it's so wrong. Yeah. But he knows it. And it's just that it, it, the, the movie, I think another thing about his humor is it feels like the thing you text your brother, but nobody else. Right. Yeah. Like 100%. if anyone yeah, saw yeah, yeah, yeah. this joke, I would be like today, canceled. But it's like these the jokes he tells his friends are the kind of like... We're all like lower middle class white dudes who are gonna say some really offensive shit to each other. And that's his humor, right? Well, and he even sort of comments on it with Clerks 3 because there's the whole thing where like they freak out during the middle of production and they're like, there's no diversity to this. It's all white dudes. So Smith, I do think, is self aware of the fact that he comes from this bubble of like New Jersey existence that would foster that kind of joke. And that's where like, it all comes from, but he's not a dummy. Like he's not in any way thinking that like, it's acceptable for Randall to say all these things. I mean, that's kind of the point of the joke at the same time, the movie does climax with a donkey show. It's shocking. Okay. I watched that scene today <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to be released in theaters. Cause like it, it doesn't just, first of all, again, the homophobia running through, like the, the whole joke is that they think it's going to be a donkey show with a woman and then surprise, <laughs> surprise, it's a man filleting and then butt fucking a donkey and, and he fucks that donkey. He, you literally see a scene of them look up and he spits on his hand, rubs his <laughs> dick and shoves in the donkey's ass. And I'm watching this and I was like, this was released like in theaters, a big fucking movie. And this is thousands of theaters, thousands of theaters, a big Big screen by the Weinstein company. Yeah. And it is like, I was genuinely like, what this is because they all have that gross. Like there's also the pot again, like dogma, the, 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 you know, the shit, the shit, um, shit demon, the shit demon, you know, or the shit golem. Right. And it is also sort of coming in the stretch of when the Weinstein company, you know, Miramax is abandoned and they're making it. Yeah. And they're, some of their movies were really pushing the envelope. I mean, cause they also released Django Unchained and right. Fucking hateful eight, two of like the most uncomfortable movies ever. Yes. Again, racially. In oh all, yeah. Exactly. All three movies. Right. But then it also has this joyful moment in Clerks 2 where everybody dances and he stages an entire musical number to the Jackson 5. Yep. And it's, to me, 
to this day, I think that's the best filmmaking of, of Smith's career. Like you feel him actually flexing for the first time and like stretching himself in a way that I don't think he ever really does. Like maybe you brought up Red State, yeah. but Red State to me looks like shit. I don't like that movie. He is doing something different and at least incorporates like Rob Zombie style, say, like yeah. handheld and everything yeah. in it. But like... A lot of sepia tones and yeah, that, exactly. that, whole, that whole look of, yeah. He's trying to wash it out, but it's like, I don't know, man. There, there's something poppy and vibrant. I love how like he contrasts the colors of Clerks 2 against the stark black and white of Clerks 1. Like the, the colors in, in Clerks 2 really pop. Even he does the Wizard of Oz like color thing in the very beginning where Dante opens the shutters and the fire's and, color and the fire's all in color. And then the movie slowly bleeds into color behind him. And like, so again, Smith knows movies and he, he knows like these references and can kind of work them in. He's just, I don't think he's a very good visual filmmaker. Yeah, it, it, It's so many guys you meet in like film school and it's like knowing a lot about movies does not make you a good filmmaker. Right. And it's like, if the idea is like, you've seen a lot, can you translate that? But I think one of the cool things I like about you brought up color for his clerks too. So one, the joke about in part three is like, it's supposed to be partly they couldn't afford anything else, but also it's like to show the humdrum nature of working as a clerk, right? Just the complete depressive environment they're in. Clerks two is the garish color of commerce. I mean, it's just the, the, the purples and the oranges and the yellows. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's depressing in its own way. It's like walking in a Walmart. Like you're exhausted, like after you walk down an aisle, you know. Well, I also wonder. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also wonder if like the color perhaps subconsciously represents like the world that he created for himself. Because I mean, Mm. technically, you know, when they make Clerks One, like that's what they were doing. Like they were working mundane, humdrum, humdrum jobs. They were shooting shooting in the store they worked at at night. Exactly. They were doing this on weekends. So like they were really representing like the world that they knew where like Clerks 2 represents the world that Smith built because again, to bring it back to the view. Yeah, they work in a movies, which is a a, a fictional fast food restaurant. Exactly. Created in his mind. So it's almost like here's the comic book panels that came from my brain. Like that I actually get to play in this world Mm -hmm. that I created. So like it contrasts against the humdrum banality of the original to being like, what if you were like, you just kind of scraped your way up out of that job through your own creativity or now making a sequel to your original film and playing in the, the universe that you created in this like vibrant technicolor. Like that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it's intentional, but in my mind I'm, I'm sitting there assigning some kind of meaning to it. You guys want to get the clerks three? I guess. And we're back talking about Clerks 3, the latest installment in Kevin Smith's Clerks saga. Guys, what'd you think? 
I know this is uh, an audio recording. I wish you could all see the look I'm giving Jacob right now. Um, all right. I do take full responsibility for this episode's existence. Like, I basically got offered the screener of Clerks 3 early and was like, we should do Clerks. Like, what? that would be kind of cool. I feel like there would be an interesting discussion there. And then we all had to suffer through Clerks together. What did we do to you that made you want to hurt us? So? I, I thought it was a good idea at the time, guys. And I mean, this movie just sucks balls. <laughs> well... Honestly, this has been really fun discussing, for real, discussing the other clerks and going back to Kevin Smith, a guy I don't think about a lot today as much as we all did when we were younger. This is one of the worst movies I've seen in a really long time. It's the worst movie I've seen this year. It's, I mean, it's up there. I, I have to think, we've, we watched a few for the summer camp thing that kind of made me... Oh, I just mean new Okay, releases. okay, new releases. Then. Yeah, yeah not definitely. counting like cheerleader camp, okay. which is still better than this. Yes, um, it's like watching a high school AV department put together a movie. It, it, yeah, and we were saying earlier, it's again, the first one feels like a play as well. Mm. This one feels like that, but at its worst. Like the charm is gone of watching your... Again, the first one has that feeling of, oh my God, I could do this. And this one is like, you're still doing this. Again, our thesis of this episode is like, yeah. grow the fuck up, dude. Do something else. Yeah, we've Please. said a lot that he keeps going back to the same well. This well is dry. Oh, Jesus. Like... And you can kind of see what he's trying to do with this one in terms of like, like you made the before trilogy comparison. Is that like Clerks is them at very, uh, they're 22, right? They say in that movie. Clerks 2, you know, you fast forward 12 years, so they're in their early 30s and we're catching up and finding that they're still kind of stuck in stasis. Although that is the one thing about Dante that I like is that, you know, he's supposed to be trying to move on. You know, from his his always in life in every single movie, he's, he's always striving and always just kind of stuck. Um, and it's even about to move to Florida with his new fiance. But I mean, Rosario Dawson was made love eyes at him, and I don't begrudge him for staying in Jersey and buying the quick stop with Randall. Clerks three picks up, and now Dante kind of feels stuck again, but because. It opens up the exact same way. It's yeah. the exact same opening shot for shot, I think. But it's like he's like, I have this business now, but the love of my life died. Which we <laughs> immediately she died immediately. Immediately after. It's such a strange thing. Like But she was pregnant, so it was at least like eight months later. Yeah, she was pregnant. No, because baby. at the end of two, she's fully pregnant. Oh, so, that's it, right. so it was right after Alright, I didn't remember that. Like yeah. right after the end of part two. Like we're in direct weeks. sequel town. Only like what? No, 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 because their headstone said... years later? Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, but he's stuck. He feels alone in life while Randall then has a heart attack and is about to die. And Dante inspires him to make a movie about to make his clerks. life. And they make clerks. And, man, there's like a germ of an interesting idea here about Kevin Smith, obviously going through his own real life health scare where he had a heart attack and almost died. You know, that's where this movie kind of comes from. Yep. But like, and him almost using it to like reexamine what he did with his own life and cinema and stuff. But like, it's just another vehicle to deliver the same jokes that we've heard two times before and also in other movies. It's just more dick and fart jokes from uh, Kevin Smith. Also, it's just like meta to the third power. Like how 
how hard can you suck your own dick because you fucked yourself so deeply in the ass? Like, I don't, it's, it's very, it's just, that's that, not physically possible. It's you're no, so no, you, elegant. you fuck yourself in the ass so hard. Your dick comes up backwards through your throat and you suck your own dick backwards. That's pretty much what happened here. You've been watching too much Kevin Smith today. <laughs> that's, that's, what happened. that's your problem. That's what happened. Damn. I don't even know how the science of that works, but it kind of makes sense in my head. No, but you were saying though, Jacob, like there's, there's elements in this movie, I was like, man, I actually like, I'm liking this scene or like the ending. I'm like, wow, this is really strangely poignant. I'm kind of touched because again, I watched the other movie. I watched there two. are a few really like laugh out loud jokes. There's a couple sprinkled through. Yeah. But, but I think, I mean, just again, the, the kind of the mortality theme of just this guy reckoning with again, a career, but also like yeah. I almost died and what your friendships mean to you, you know, when you feel like death knocking on your door. Um, but again, there's just, it goes off the rails with these long, again, stupid nerd conversations. But I even, the nerd conversations are kind of gone. It's just the horrible dick jokes now. Well, to take it back to Cody's dick sucking thing, is that like, it's Smith again, indulging in all the view universe stuff. Yeah. To where it's just like, Jay and Silent Bob now own a weed store next time, which is kind of a funny running joke is that first it was the video store that's next door to the, the quick stop. Then it became a nail salon and two and now three. It's like a THC like CBD weed shop, shop that yeah. they, they run. That which, they still sell weed out of out in the front like, because they haven't grown up. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's again, the, the running theme is, you know, video stores are no longer needed. We have we're in the time of streaming. Now you're in New Jersey where you can buy weed legally. It's all this. So it's like he's aware of these guys like almost being purposely stuck. Like they're keeping themselves in this point. And like, you know, spoiler alert, but I killing Dante off is really weird at the ending because like, you know, you think about the end of one and two and in both Randall kind of talks some sense into Dante. And he's like, hey, man, like you're my best friend. Like, I know I talk shit a lot, but I... I love you and I need you. And like, if you get out of your own way, you can have a good life. And now that Rosario Dawson's dead, it has the sub theme of, Oh, I don't want to be here anymore. It's like my love, my life is already dead and I'd be better off dead too. And it has this weird thing of like, it's time to go to heaven where it's almost like Jean Valjean and Les Mis <laughs> where it's like, they're singing him to his rest. Yeah. It's or the really Jacob's ladder. Yeah. It's <laughs> really fucking weird. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's, again, Smith indulging this weird universe that he's created, but also, like, you can see where he wants to take the movie, but he's regressing along with the characters themselves as a director, 100%, because this movie looks like hammered fucking shit. Like, it's one of the worst-looking digitally shot movies I've ever experienced. It's just, we were commenting the whole time on, like, how the makeup even looks bad because, not necessarily because of the makeup itself, but because Smith literally doesn't know how to shoot it. You know how to light or shoot. And there's a scene that I can think of in particular where I was like, maybe he never knew how to direct super, super well. But, like, the scene where it's, it's again, a two-shot but it cuts from like all of them. Oh yeah, right. It cuts from a two shot of Dante and Randall at the at the counter, just like, straight on. And then it just shifts like five degrees <laughs> to the right. Which this is drove to, you insane. I, I was literally you saw me like squirming in my chair, and but it's like once you see it, you can't get out of it. You're like, oh my god, this is like 
I can't not see this, what you're doing. You literally don't know what you're doing. And it, the cuts were also happening like way too frequently. As well. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's like, and it's bad editing. It's, it's like bad shooting too. Cause like you have a, a, you know, a straight on two shot fine. And then it just moves the camera. It doesn't change the size of the shot. And it's not an over the shoulder shot. It's just a slightly different angle. It's like what Ang Lee did in Hulk, where he would like cut this weird, like over the line. Like he crossed the like the 180 axis for like a different angle, but like he was kind of doing something weird with it. Are this you is, besmirching Hulk? No, I love Hulk. Okay. But like that, and that clear. was but he would do it to kind of like for effect. This is just well, there's an effect for sure. Makes me want to fucking throw my TV out the door. <laughs> like it's an ugly movie. It's just really poorly made. What do you think of the performances? We haven't even really touched on like Brian O'Halloran or the rest of the cast. And like, I think he particularly fluctuates between movies. Like one, you're dealing with an amateur actor kind of being in front of the camera for the first time. So you kind of have to grade it on a curve. It's also, I mean, it's a, it's an uh, unprofessional actor in essentially a student film. Yeah, exactly. And we were talking about that while we were watching clerks three, but like clerks two, I know we had some varying opinions on where I actually really like him in that movie and you do not. I don't. I just think he, I don't think he ever grew like a lot of people didn't grow. And yeah. I think he's also, it's one of the times where what was weird is that Smith would have his buddies in a lot of these movies. Then you would have real comedians or real stars come in. And a lot of times it just shows how this kind of stark difference between a person who's trained and who's not. Martin, what you actually missed there was how good of an actor he is because he was method acting because his character was not supposed to have grown or developed all since the first movie in which he was a terrible actor. So he's just method acting being a terrible actor. again. Well, that's a, that's a, you know, I, it wasn't go- working. It was, you know, but it's really like, he's absolutely, I think he's terrible and he's really bad in this one too. And we're also supposed to believe in part two that he has, you know, snowball's chance in hell of not only fucking Rosario Dawson on a random one night stand, but her being in love with him and wanting him to stay and have her baby with him and be married. Loving him enough to go ask him out. Yes. But it's, but it's also, again, Dante has always been Kevin Smith. Like that is how I've always, it, that Randall is Kevin Smith's dirtiest sense of humor. And the, the, he is, he's Dante of is this guy who at that time felt stuck. And Brian O'Halloran, he looks like bloated in this movie. It's bad. And he looks like an aging queen at the drag bar. Yes. It's like, but Randall, I think is consistent in all three of like, he's not a great actor, but he's good at doing that character. That, that sarcastic thing, like that's his bit and he's good at it. I wonder if that's just him. I think it must be. I imagine. I mean, I imagine who was, he's like an amped up version of him, you know? Because like even like how like Jason Mewes like Jay is just kind of just Jason Mewes you yeah. know, and so it's like, and I always did like Smith as Silent Bob, but like he even looks terrible in this because of the weird like tanning that he's done, the weight like loss, heart attack, the weight loss. He just because he was always really good as like this wisdom dispensing like kind of object in the movies and he does this again in clerks three where he kind of goes through because in another bit of meta commentary silent bob shoots he's the cinematographer yeah and then when they you know 
question him about it. He has the most artistic thing to say about why. And you know it's Smith basically verbalizing why he shot the original or trying to assign some kind of meeting beyond like, or intent beyond uh, budgetary restrictions of being like, well, I meant to shoot it in black and white. It's like, I don't know. That might've just been what you could afford. Exactly. Yeah, this feels, I mean, but as a whole, it's an hour and 40 minutes. It feels like four hours long, uh, a lot of segments. And it's, again, I, I I get you, again, returning to the well, like Cody said, but also, like, wanting to do a film about your own mortality. But it's just not an interesting view or a, or a kind of, like, there's no sense of catharsis for me in the film of, like, oh, man, that is right. Like, that's what he was dealing with. And it just shows how just like ineffectual he is as a writer today and a filmmaker. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an embarrassing movie, I and mean, it really is fucking embarrassing to watch. There's a lot of things that didn't make sense. But what was the point of the new Jay and Silent Bob guys? The, uh, the oh the stand-ins. Oh, that's right because he brings back the Christian guy Elijah or Elijah Elias, Elias yeah. Eliza Eli- Who cares? Yeah, like that but because he's the dude who works. At movies with them, super in Christian. Part two, he's super Christian, and Randall just basically harangues him the entire time. And then in this one, he's still back, but like starts off Christian. He's Randall got he's got can, a wacky somehow. Yeah, because there's all these weird They're trying to make Bitcoin kites and or no, sorry, NFTs. NFT kites. Yeah, NFTs. There's some blockchain and crypto jokes, which just. I don't think that Kevin Smith, I think he has about as much understanding of crypto as I do, which is none. Yeah. So it's like, they just feel like, what's modern now? What can we joke about that the kids will get? Crypto. Like, that's a thing. And it's like, all right, but this doesn't make any sense because I don't feel like, yeah, well, I also don't feel like the characters actually know what they're talking about either. They're just like, crypto's a thing. Now we made t-shirts. But then he becomes a Satanist and keeps showing up in like different iterations of kiss makeup. It's because, like 80s goth Satanist or something. I don't Yeah, because he even has hair like Flock of Seagulls or Robert Smith at one point. And it's just this whole movie's fucking stupid and half assed. That's the thing, is just I mean, if if it looked better, it, I would honestly have this would have been an easier pill to swallow. It's like it's a You bat- think so. I do it was think just so. the visual aspect, not the rest of the dog shit that no, was there. No, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm not saying he would enjoy swallowing it, just that it would be easier. It would just be easier. I think if it looked like, I'm like, oh my God, like he wrote a bad script, but like he's grown at least as a director and like, wow, this actually looks okay. But no, it's just like, it's bad on every level and it's just lazy. The whole thing's fucking lazy. How long? He probably wrote this thing in like a week. And like, I knew we were in trouble from the moment that he layers My Chemical Romance's the black parade over a montage that goes on for fucking ever. Like the credits end in this montage of them opening up the quick stop and playing hockey on the roof again. It just keeps going. And I remember we looked at each other and I was like, are we going to get to the movie or like, are we just filling time? Like what's happening? Here? I don't even understand why those were, but the song choices were made. Cause a couple of the songs are like you said, the black parade. And I don't remember the, what the other one was, but it's another like mid two thousands. Uh, it's like yellow card or something. Song. There's a lot of emo in it. Yeah. Um, which I love my chemical romance. So I'm here for that, but it didn't make any sense. Like not, neither of those song choices made any sense towards any sort of point in the film. Like why you were can't those imagine there? the characters listening to it? Either. Yeah. Was that supposed to signify what, like period of time that it was? Is this supposed to take place no. in 2006? No, it's modern day, but it's just supposed to be them. I think it is supposed to be older stuff. Like 
it's not, it would have made more sense if it was all like 1994 music. Right. You know, like these are guys stuck in time, but it is all like kind of dated. And I think he just embraces that, that it's like, I'm a dad and I don't know what's cool anymore. I would have liked if there was an update on Berserker. Like, could we bring Berserker back? I love that shit. Would you like to make the fuck Berserker? Did you just say making fuck? Because <laughs> that's the other thing is that, like, I was dreading watching the first two movies again because I did not think I was going to find them funny. I didn't think I was going to connect with any of it at all. And I had a lot of fun watching both. Like, I really liked one it was one of the the moments of revisiting a movie to where I, I totally clicked with its sense of humor and was like, this is still fucking funny while also watching it and being like, I understand why this was important at yeah, the time. Yeah. Like I totally get what's happening. It's like one of the most nineties, if not the most nineties movie ever made. It's like, I can the crunch list. era nineties. Yeah. Well, and it's also like stuff like that. And like Larry Clark's kids, like huge oh, right yeah. around the same time to where it was just this boom to where you could point to a couple movies like that kids the link ladder movies Soderbergh the stuff we listed off in the last segment like it's like they were indicative of what was happening in American indie cinema during the 90s Clerks 2 I was watching and being like okay this is gonna suck but I like was instantly like pulled right in and laughed my ass off the whole time because of what what you said in the last one is that it's like he pushes the sense of humor to its absolute breaking point where he wants to offend you three so i was jazzed to watch this with you guys i was like oh you know what maybe going back to this well he could like replicate some of that old magic again nope this magic sucks no it's Oh, yeah, it's it's a rough one, and I, I just don't know. I mean, I I'm done with his new stuff. Like, I would have to hear that he made some film down the line, where it's like, oh my god, like he rediscovered his muse or what have you, and like he made a really cool movie. Um, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think Hollywood also like they're not knocking on his door. He has his he has his playground. And he's going to play there. You know, it's like he gets enough money from his best person from Kickstarter and his fan base, which is still there. You know, oh, yeah. and, and all that directing on like the CW, he did a bunch of episodes of Supergirl and the Flash. And oh, you're right, that. yeah, and and of course, you know, he was a showrunner and wrote a lot of the new Masters of the Universe uh-huh. um, animated show for Revelations for Netflix, Netflix, which I'm sure paid him a pretty penny. Well, and he's written comics for years, outside of also owning owning a comic shop in Red Red Bank, New Jersey. Yeah, owns a lot of property there. I know. So, like one of the things that we haven't even talked about with Smith is how oh, he how... bought that theater. I forgot about that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, but like one of the things we haven't really talked about with him in is like how he was one of the earliest examples of like becoming your own brand before like social yep. media and stuff. Like Kevin Smith, and again, kind of like Quentin Tarantino and everything. It was like he was a guy that you could sell not just the movies on, but like podcasts, TV shows. Um, he was a super whole nerd. Internet. Yeah. personality like he was t- like twitter branding between before twitter was an actual thing you know and then he has just carried that to the bank the whole way to where now like you just said he has this whole fan base that worships him like god forbid you say anything negative about kevin smith because some of them even name search and will like attack you online like they're maniacs well and i, I think about another comedian who I think kind of hangs in the same area. Jay is Moore pa- is Patton Oswalt. Oh, mm-hmm. um, now I think Patton Oswalt is much more, uh, 
he's much more talented, um, but also came from that similar thing of like commenting on nerd culture. There were other comedians who'd done that, but he kind of had made it also a household name. All his stuff about Star Wars yeah, and the prequels, Star Wars filibuster. Yeah, oh yeah, the, you know. But he had a whole he had a whole bit about you know if I met George Lucas, I would kill him. If I go back in time, I'd kill George Lucas with a shovel. You know, <laughs> but he. That's a guy too who no, it's he's not a filmmaker, but he has definitely changed and done drama, you know. But he's still he has sold himself as nerd extraordinaire, yeah. you know. I know everything. King of the nerd. Yeah, but he again, he's he's shifted and he's done all kinds of interesting things. Well, and he also has his own taxi driver and big fan. Yeah, and he has exactly. a new movie now uh, that I haven't seen yet that played at South by called I, I Love, Love you, you Dad. I Love you, Dad. I had a friend who saw it. And they take it all the way. It's about the true story um, of a a guy who catfishes his own son because uh, he wants to have some relationship with his son who won't talk to him. And he creates an online persona as a woman and befriends him and starts dating his son online. This is based on a true story. True story. You just yeah. sold me so hard oh on seeing God. this movie. Yeah. I met the producer in line at South By. He pitched me. I didn't even hear about it yet. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and and I, had a, I had a friend who? who saw it and they said they take it all the way to the limit and Patton's great in it. But again, I think he's another guy who kind of hangs out and maybe Kevin kind of walked so he could run, you know, again, that kind of humor, sure. you know? Well, yeah. And the thing about Patton Oswalt though, too, is that he always felt before he became a dad and everything, like he was on the fringe to a certain degree. Like he was one of the poster children of not just nerd culture, but like alt comedy yeah. culture. And that's where I think also gave him an edge over Smith to where like Smith sold out early and it still feels like Patton Oswalt, despite appearing on shit like parks and rec has never sold out. Yeah. He still kept, like, and he, I think he was on a show with fucking Kevin James at one point too, like one right. of those. So it's like he's yeah. still like, he was like his neighbors. That, that paid the that paid the bills, and he still has kept his you know and been very public. Obviously, he's had a rough a rough decade with sure. the, the passing of his wife, and you know, but he's just written that into his comedy. But again, I just, it's interesting to think about modern nerd nerd like meta comedy and also filmmaking. I feel like that's what everything is right now, though. It's just like meta comic book. Oh, annoying multiverse. So. Yes, Marvel. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> That's fine because I mean, I don't think Marvel does either. No, they certainly do not. And I don't think Kevin Smith knew where Clerks three was going, except that Dante dies in the end. Sorry, spoiler alert, but fuck this movie will write up its stupid ass. I mean, that was the best part of the movie that it ended. No. That, well, yeah, but that, I mean, like you even stated as we were watching it, you're like, I think this was like the seed of the good idea that was here that they just, you know, shit all over. Yep. Yeah. Well, guys, I'll tell you what, though. It produced a really fun podcast. Indeed. It was good being in the same room with both of you. Absolutely. And we're going to continue doing this with Cody coming back since he now lives back in Austin again. He's going to be doing a lot of more like new release stuff with us, but you'll have to stay tuned to hear all that with Secret Handshake. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.